All right. Once again, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 3. And if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And uh, let me just kind of tell you what's going on here. Uh, we are studying the book of Galatians here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Usually we do our books of the Bible verse by verse, but we've already done that with Galatians, so we thought that we try to teach the book topically based on its main theme. And the main theme of Galatians is liberty, uh, the liberty or freedom that is ours in Christ. And as we have said, the book divides itself into three main areas of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle. Liberty from lies, liberty from law, and then liberty for life or liberty for living. Now, in our study, we've entered into the second major section, liberty from law, which is really, as we have said, liberty from religion and legalism as a way of being made right in God's eyes. And so the section liberty from law is the largest of the book. Uh, it goes from chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 31. And uh, so far, we've looked at uh, the testimony of Paul, next the transgression of Peter, and that brings us this morning to the treachery of false prophets. Now, before we get into chapter 3, let me just say this. False prophets are nothing new or unique to the church age. Second Peter 2 tells us that just as there were false prophets among God's people in the Old Testament, there will be false teachers among God's people in the New. They will try to sneak into the church destructive or damning heresies, doctrines that will damn a person to hell if embraced and believed in. Peter says, beware, God's going to judge them someday, but be on guard. So false prophets have been around since the beginning. In fact, much of the ministries of God's true prophets in the Old Testament was taken up with confronting, correcting, and rebuking false prophets, listen, who are like a cancer in the land of Israel. I'll give you one reference, Jeremiah 14, 14, where the Lord said, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Guys, the word prophet comes from a Hebrew word that means to speak on behalf of another or to be a spokesman for another. And of course, the word is used most often in the Bible for someone who is a spokesman for God, unless, of course, they were a false prophet. But uh, we make the mistake of thinking that the true prophets of God were, were men whose ministry was to predict the future or foretelling. And certainly that was part of what a prophet did when God sent him to speak on his behalf. But most of what the prophets did when they spoke for God was simply to declare his words to his people. In other words, most of their ministry consisted of not in foretelling futuristic stuff, but in forth-telling as in speaking forth the word of God. Therefore, guys, any time a teacher teaches the Bible or a Christian shares scriptures with someone, they are, in a very broad sense, acting as a prophet. They're acting as a spokesman for God. They're giving his word. It's God's word. He spoke it, and I'm just sharing it. So I'm really, uh, in a very broad sense, being a prophet or a spokesman for God. And so in that regard, the Judaizers were false prophets false prophets. They were not speaking on God's behalf. Now look, Paul dealt with a lot of lies uh, in his missionary journeys. The first century Greco-Roman pagan world was loaded with all kinds of false doctrine. But 
the one that he is dealing with in this letter to the Galatians was the lie of the Judaizers, which is legalism. As we have said, the Judaizers were Jews, probably Pharisees, who considered themselves Christians, but had not let go of the law. In fact, they went around following Paul after he would leave an area. They came in behind him telling the Gentiles that it was necessary for them to first become Jews before they could really be saved, get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and then they could exercise faith in Christ and, uh, and be saved and become Christians. And they also said to the Jews, they had to remain loyal to the law and keep practicing its tenets if they wanted to exercise faith in Jesus and be saved. So the Judaizers were going around telling people that salvation was a mixture of Judaism and Christianity, of law and grace, of works plus faith. And that's why Paul goes on to, to say to start chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh or by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now guys, as we said last time, all evangelical Christians know that they're saved by grace. We all know that. But where they often stumble is buying into the false teaching, which is really a demonic lie engineered by the devil to put people back under the law, even if they're saved, so he can neutralize their effectiveness. But they know they're saved by grace, but then they fall into the lie that after getting saved by grace, they then think that their sanctification falls completely on them in the way of doing good works. Or as Paul put it, after starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you not trying to become perfect by your own human effort, the NLT says. And so, guys, the mentality on the part of some Christians seems to be, yeah, I know I'm saved by grace, but I still need to go to church, read the Bible, keep commandments, light candles if you're a Catholic, pray the rosary, uh, and do all kinds of good stuff if God's going to really love me and really bless my life and ministry. That's more common uh, uh, a mentality uh, among some Christians than you might realize, especially because there's whole legalistic churches out there. I've met Christians who go to these very legalistic churches, and they really don't have any peace. They are always worried about not measuring up. It's terrible. Uh, perfect love casts out fear. If you really understand the perfect love of God and that he did it all, uh, and I don't really have to do anything to make him love me more, use me, and bless me, and so on. It's all in Christ. You're going to be right where the devil wants you. And guys, this idea that I, I'm saved by grace, but now i got to work. got to keep rules and regulations and law. That's, of course, completely at odds with what God's Word tells us, that not only are we saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, but once we're saved, then the just now shall live by faith. Uh, that first appears in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, repeated three times in the New Testament because it's that important, that important. But listen, I do believe, all right, I, I, I don't want to confuse, but I do believe that Paul did have this in mind in part uh, when it came to his opening rebuke in Galatians 3, that some of the people in the churches of Galatia who had received Jesus by faith and were genuinely saved we're now trying to use the law, again, religious works, legalism, 
in a misguided attempt to sanctify themselves for God, in other words, to reach their full potential of maturity and fruitfulness. However, I do think he had that in mind, however, if we look at Paul's remarks closely in Galatians at the end of chapter 2 and then moving into chapters 3 and 4, it's obvious that what he's coming against is the Judaizer's false gospel that consisted of them blending law and grace together as being, listen, essential for salvation, not just sanctification. I'll give you a flavor of this. Uh, just write these references down. But Galatians 2.21, Paul said, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness, that's a synonym for salvation, if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified, that's another synonym for salvation, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified, saved by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. It's obvious he's not just talking about sanctification. The Judaizers had invented a gospel, no doubt the devil really helped them with it, uh, whereby they were preaching that you can't be saved unless you become a Jew first, keep the law, and then you can exercise faith in Christ. Galatians 3.21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness or salvation would have been by the law. And I'll just read you verses 10 and 11 from Galatians 4. He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That's keeping the law. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. And that's the kind of language that Paul is using for people that he thought were saved, but now realizes that many of them probably aren't because they're, they're, they're embracing the law. All right. All right, let's take a closer look at uh, verses 1 to 4 of Galatians 3, which we've labeled the treachery of false prophets or false teachers. Again, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? When Paul calls the Galatians foolish, the Greek word doesn't mean mental deficiency. In other words, he's not putting them down by calling them mental defectives. Listen, you mental defectives. He's not doing that. Rather, he uses the, the word he uses speaks of mental laziness and carelessness. As one author put it, the believers in Galatia were not stupid. They simply failed to use their spiritual intelligence when faced by the unscriptural gospel-destroying teaching of the Judaizers. End quote. Guys, Paul is saying, you're not using your heads and applying what you've been taught. You know, Jesus told us that we need to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's been deleted out of a lot of Christians' vocabularies in certain churches that pander to feelings. Uh, the Emerging Church is a church that they have said we provide a multi-sensory worship experience all about feelings. All about feelings. Very little teaching, a lot of feelings. Okay? But Jesus said we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, God told wayward Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Guys, God has given us a brain. 
and the ability to think critically and logically, and he expects us to use our brain that way. Now, Paul was upset that the Galatians weren't thinking the doctrine of the Judaizers through to its logical conclusion, that if works got us into heaven, then Jesus died in vain. I'm sure you've talked to people, and you ask them, well, how do you get to, you know, how do you, how do you get to heaven um, by being good? And then I always come back with, well, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And their eyes go sideways. Because they've never thought about it. They've never logically followed to the conclusion of where their faith is leading them. Paul said, you guys aren't thinking. I, I taught you all this. You're buying into this, this, this heresy of these people that aren't even brethren. He called them false brethren in a different part of the Bible, these Judaizers. He said, look, if our works got us into heaven, then Jesus died in vain. His, his death was unnecessary. What he's implying is if we can work our way into heaven, then why do we need grace? Grace means getting what we don't deserve. If you could earn heaven, then you did deserve it. It doesn't make sense. Paul's kind of baffled, a little, I'm sure, a little frustrated. Bewitched. The word bewitched comes from a Greek word that means enchanted or, or charmed. In other words, Paul is asking them, who put a spell on you guys? that you've been spiritually seduced into leaving the simplicity that is yours in Christ. The gospel is very simple. Believe in Jesus with all your heart and receive him into your heart as your Savior, and you're saved. And you're saved. Why do you want to add to it all kinds of very comp... The, the law contains 613 commandments. The Jews couldn't even memorize them all, let alone live them. And you want to bring that into this... Sim the beautiful simplicity that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That doesn't even make sense. Portrayed comes from a Greek word that means to post a notice in the town square. Look, guys, that was their social media back then. How'd you get a, the word out? How'd you get an announcement or a pronouncement out? What they would do in the agora, the marketplace of every town, they would set up these pillars. And you could attach a note or a sign or something if you wanted to make an announcement uh, or some other thing like that. That was how they got the word out. And Paul was saying, look, guys, you know that Jesus Christ was openly crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. It's no secret. I mean, everybody knows that. It's like he said to Agrippa and uh, uh, Festus in Acts 26, 26. These things were not done in a corner. It's common knowledge. Why did he die if we could earn heaven by being getting into all this legalism? The word crucified uh, in the Greek, one scholar said, is in the perfect passive participle and denotes an act that happened in the past, but the effects of which continue to have ongoing results in the present. In other words, Paul's saying the solution to the problem of sin in your life is still the same. Nothing has changed. It's still the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of God accessed through faith, not through the law. Verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, this is so important. Let me amplify it, okay? Let me amplify what Paul is actually saying. Paul is asking them, when you got saved, did you have to do something to receive the Holy Spirit who came inside of you and gave you new life? Did you have to go to church so many times first? Did you have to fast and pray for a week? Did you have to participate in a ritual or a ceremony of some kind? No, you just simply believed in Jesus. The Spirit came in, and you were saved by God's grace, period. 
It begs the question, how did the Philippian jailer get saved? You remember that in Acts 16? Who at one point fell at Paul and Silas's feet and said, men, how can I be saved? What did Paul say? Well, that's pretty complicated. You, you got to go to church for at least two months. <laughs> you you, you got to pray and fast for, for at least a week. You know, you got to start reading the Bible hours every day. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your entire family if they believe. How'd the thief on the cross get saved? He had time to do the works of the law. He made a pronouncement of faith in Jesus, and Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Galatians 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Let me paraphrase. Paul is saying, if salvation is all by God's grace, then why do you, ha why do you so foolishly think he needs you to finish the work he has begun. Here's the problem, and don't miss this. This is critical, all right? Here's the problem. Many false teachers in so-called Christian churches have turned salvation into a process, the work of a lifetime, instead of what the Bible teaches salvation is, and that's the miracle of a moment. Salvation is not the work of a lifetime. It is the miracle of a moment. When I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, this is what we were taught about salvation, that it is an ongoing process, that salvation is earned over time through religious works. Of course, in Catholicism, you don't go to Mass, keep the holy days, the sacraments, light the candles, pray the rosary, and then you will earn through all those little works of righteousness, you'll earn little installments of grace that will accrue and allow you to eventually earn your salvation. In Catholic theology, the Church teaches that no Catholic, can, not even the Pope, can say they have eternal life. If they do, they are to be anathematized, cursed to hell. Because the Catholic Church came up with this many centuries ago to control people. You control them through fear of coming judgment. You can't let them believe they have salvation when they believe in Jesus, because then they can't control, and the devil can't condemn, Right? But the Bible says very clearly in many places, one I'll give you, 1 John 5.13, John says, I am writing these things to you who believe in Jesus that you may know you have eternal life. Guys, we're not working towards salvation. We are working from it. We have eternal life the moment we accept Christ as our Savior. It is the miracle of a moment. But the Catholic Church teaches that you can't say that. You have eternal life. You got to wait until you die, stand before God to see if you've done enough good works over the course of your life to earn eternal life. And guys, this is exactly what the Judaizers were going around teaching people. The Judaizers had convinced the Gentiles in Galatia, many of them, that receiving Jesus by faith was not enough to make them fully justified. Good start, not the end. They needed ongoing obedience to the law to be fully redeemed, saved, and that would be a lifelong process. But once again, guys, I also see here a trap that many true Christians can sometimes fall into, that once they are saved by grace, they then need to keep the law to be all that God wants them to be, which is mature and fruitful. We talked about this. We talked about those Christians who have embraced the Hebrew Roots Movement. And I'm not going to get into it much today. I'll just throw it out in passing. We'll study it 
a little more in detail, but we already looked at it. It's a movement that says you have to embrace your Hebrew roots, have to keep feast days and Sabbaths and dietary laws if you want to be all that God wants you to be. It's not just by grace. You have to embrace your Hebrew roots. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who have embraced that theology, and um, it's of the devil because it puts Christians back under the law. Now, I'm not going to say any more about it right now because we're going to get to, in chapter 3, Paul's going to really hammer this. I'll leave it for then, but I just want you to understand there are Christians out there. And I'm not saying Paul doesn't have any of them in mind when he talks to people that have started in the Spirit and now trying to be made perfect in the flesh. Paul could be talking about sanctification, having true Christians having been saved by grace, now think they have to be sanctified by law. But the problem was that many Gentiles uh, in Galatia had bought into this. And they were already saved, but now they were undergoing circumcision, observing dietary laws, keeping the Sabbaths, and so on, because that's what they had been taught by the Judaizers. And Paul is asking them, how is that going to... Pre- Think about it. Again, he's, he's kind of exasperated that they ha- they've not thought this through. Can't God finish the work he's begun? I mean, why does God need me now? If he saved me by grace, he's going to keep me by grace, right? I think somebody wrote a song about that. You know, Amazing Grace. You know, I mean, I, he's gonna, grace is going to see me all the way through to glory. It's all about God. It's all about what, what he's done. Um, and he quotes, again, Habakkuk 2.4 in chapter 3, verse 11 of Galatians. Uh, he says, look, guys, remember the just shall live by faith, not by faith plus law, not by law. You're saved by faith, but now you live by faith because grace got you saved. Grace is going to see you through all the way to glory. Let me read to you Galatians 3, 3 out of the NLT. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect, could be saved or sanctified, either one or both, by your own human effort? I love Philippians 1, 6. We all know it. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it finally until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns for his church, the rapture. And we're made like him as we see him as he is. I am sure Paul, who is zealous for God's glory, I am sure that Paul is not wanting only to correct the Galatians with regard to salvation. He wants to correct them in this idea that they can somehow uh, take partial credit for the work God wants to do in their lives. Oh, he saved me. But now, everything else is me. And we know that God will finish the work he has begun. He doesn't need our help. Now, guys, in any great movement of God, Paul's ministry was a great move of God. I like to think that Calvary Chapel, when it first started, was a total work of the Holy Spirit. It had to be. There's no no way to explain it otherwise. You've seen the movie. You, you know, I've read the book, The Reproducers, and uh, the, the history of, of the Calvary Chapel movement. It, was, it wasn't just the Calvary. It was uh, the, the great awakening uh, that God worked in our country uh, in the 60s and 70s and so on. But let me just personalize it to Calvary Chapel. Uh, we know that Calvary Chapel began as a work of the Holy Spirit. He just started moving. 
and these young kids, hippie kids and so on, and druggies and drug dealers, and they, they started getting saved. There was no reason for it. The, the, the religious establishment, the Bible colleges and seminaries, they were baffled. How are these kids who have no theological training at all, how are they being used to save so many people? It was a total work of the Spirit. But here's what happens. Whenever God begins a work, after a while, whether you're talking about a work in a person's life, a church, or a nation, like Israel, started off trusting God, God blessed, after a while, hey, maybe it's just us. Maybe we're special. It's our military strength, America, our, our capitalistic system. That's why we're great. And this mentality began to infect the Calvary movement. What God started by his grace, some of the pastors of these big churches started reading church growth books, marketing strategies and demographic studies and other church growth principles. They began to incorporate these into their churches as a way of helping God to finish what he started. Now, there's a well-known pastor in California, a Calvary guy, I know him well. First name is Dave. And he told a story to Pastor's Conference. I'm not betraying a confidence. He told a story to Pastor's Conference a few years ago where he said that, um, and, and God grew Dave's church into a megachurch. And a professor of one of the Bible colleges in the area wanted to meet with Dave for lunch to talk about what God had done, what happened. And so they, they agreed to meet at the cafeteria of the university for lunch and talk about it. Well, Dave said, I just finished reading this church growth book. And for some reason, he saw his church reflected in those pages. So he was going to tell this professor that, Dave's telling the story, he was going to tell this professor that the reason God was able to grow our church because we did this and that and this and that, all these church growth principles. So they're in line with their trays, you know, at the, at the university cafeteria. And they both walk over to a, ta a table, put their trays down. And Dave was about to go into this, give his little spiel. And the professor said, oh, hang on, I'm going to get some milk. He walks away. And Dave said, God spoke to me so powerfully, it took me back. God said, Dave, if you take glory and credit for what I've done in your church, I will remove my spirit from your church completely it was so powerful that dave said i like somebody punched me in the solar plexus and when the professor came back dave said you know what it was all god and that was the truth it was all god you know i think there's a verse i could be wrong help me out where god says i won't share my glory with another i think that's in the bible isn't it yeah check out isaiah 42 i think verse 8 God's very particular about the work he does. He wants to get the glory. He should get the glory for it. He does not want us coming alongside him and going, well, God, you and I really did a good work here. No, that that's not how it works. He wants us to give him all the glory. Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain? Let me stop there. In other words, Paul is asking them, you were persecuted in the beginning when you first got saved because you believed it was all God's grace. Are you going to let all of that be for nothing? You know, how many of us, when we first got saved, and I'm thinking mostly of Roman Catholics because the Roman Catholic Church makes mass attendance and lighting candles and keeping feasts is essential for earning your salvation. 
But how many of us, when we first, as Catholics, first got saved, and we began to share with people? It's, it's just grace. And, and how many of our Catholic friends and family who maybe went to Mass every morning, you know, and, and prayed the rosary every day and, and made an effort to light candles in Jesus' name, right? How many of those people did we lose for telling them that it, was all, it wasn't about going to Mass or, or, or doing any religious works? It was just God's grace. Of course, that offends a religious person who's put a lot of effort into their religion and doing a lot of works. They don't want to hear that. They, they want to believe that they're really a great person for doing these things. And they've earned favor with God. Paul is saying to the Galatians, if you go back to the law, it will be like saying that your persecutors were right after all. Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, I think that Paul is being hopeful here. I think he's saying, you know what, I'm worried about you that I've labored in vain, that you haven't really accepted Christ, but I'm still hopeful that you really have. You've just taken a little detour doctrinally and that the Holy Spirit's going to bring you back on the right path. And that's why I'm writing to you. I want you to understand, remind you what I taught you, what God has spoken. And I'm hoping that, you know, that uh, you'll, you'll come back to the, the true gospel, the one you used to suffer for. And that brings us to the next point, guys. We see in chapter 3, the treachery of false prophets, verses 1 to 4, starting with verse 5, the truth of the gospel. Verse 5, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, it's a little off topic, but since Paul mentions the Holy Spirit working miracles among the churches of Galatia, let's talk about it. Because it really isn't. His point is, when you preach the true gospel, A, you were persecuted. Because the devil hates the true gospel. B, God confirmed it was the true gospel by doing miracles among you. God doesn't confirm false teachers' heresies with miracles. So it really isn't off topic. But I want to just spend a little time, uh, just spend the rest of our time, uh, on this topic. Look, a miracle is a supernatural event for which there is no natural explanation. Uh, there are many who don't believe in miracles in our culture, or in the supernatural for that matter. Uh, they believe that all the miracles in the Bible and down through history can be explained through natural laws and natural phenomena. You even have people like the uh, Christian scientists who believe that Jesus really didn't perform miracles. Uh, he was a scientist who was ahead of his time. And he understood the laws of science and used those laws to do things that others back then were th they thought were supernatural miracles. But it wasn't. It's like we see a 747 jumbo jet taken off, all right? We don't go, oh, wow! No, it's, uh, we understand. It's a machine that's using the laws of aerodynamics to lift off the ground. It's, uh, we understand that, right? You transport a guy from 300 years ago to an airport, and he sees a 747 taken off. He's freaking out. It's a miracle. But no, it's just natural laws he does in those days they didn't understand that we do. They're not miracles. And that's the idea behind a lot of these people that don't believe that miracles are in the Bible or that they're not really miracles, right? And uh, you, you have skeptics that protest the Bible by holding on to the belief that miracles are impossible. But 
It's as Pastor Chuck Smith said in his book, Living Water. He said, and I quote, a miracle is something that is humanly impossible, but divinely simple. The difficulty of anything must always be measured by the capacity of the agents doing the work. When God is the agent doing the work, talk of difficulty is absurd. I'll give you an example. I'm not an animal trainer, but I would imagine that people have trained, we'll say, monkeys to do some remarkable things. They even communicate in some rudimentary ways with sign language. You've seen that, Coco or whatever that monkey's name is. Um, so people can train monkeys to do some pretty remarkable things. I don't believe they can be trained to build a skyscraper. And that's beyond the scope of an animal, right? But if you have specially trained construction workers, that's completely within their ability to, to do that. The same is true with miracles. Sure, they're impossible by human standards. When you use humans as the agent doing the work, a lot of things are impossible. But when you look at God as the agent doing the work in a miracle, that's, that's not a problem at all. Guys, the whole denial of God and the supernatural today is due to an anti-spiritual, secular, rationalistic, materialistic mindset that has taken captive the thinking of academia, the scientific community, and Western civilization in general over the last two or three hundred years. We have moved from a, a country that was really founded on God's word, who believed in a supernatural, miracle-working God. Our own revolutionary war is loaded with miracles. There are books written about the miracles God did that, that was able to birth this nation. We should not have been able to defeat Great Britain. They were the superpower of the world. It's amazing what God did, uh, the battles he fought, and what he did in these battles to work miracles that we would be able to be established as a nation, and then the greatest nation on the face of the earth. But for those of us who do believe in the God of the Bible, we know that he's a supernatural God who, listen, has created the natural universe and has put in place natural laws which he uses to govern and control that natural universe. But listen, at any time, at any time if he chooses, he can suspend or work contrary to those natural laws if it suits his purposes. When he does, we are amazed. We call it a miracle. But for God, it isn't anything special. For him, it's normal. I mean, it's all in the realm of his almighty power. As he said in the scriptures, I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? Or as Gabriel announced to Mary when she said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. You told me I'm going to be pregnant. He said, well, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Guys, whenever people stumble uh, over the reality of miracles, I always ask them, do you believe the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they usually say yes. Then I say, well, then, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, then when it comes to miracles, the rest is easy. The rest is easy. Guys, we see th all throughout the pages of the Old and New Testaments, God using the supernatural to testify to his existence and to validate his power, that he's almighty God. One of the primary examples of this is in the Old Testament, apart from creation, of course, is when God parted the Red Sea. In fact, that's the one miracle he keeps coming back to in the pages of the Old Testament is the greatest miracle that he did on earth uh, to prove that he is a living and powerful God, the parting of the Red Sea. But we don't have to go far. You turn the pages and come to the book of Joshua, and we see how God parted the Jordan River at flood stage. 
and even caused the sun to stand still for almost an entire day. Now, skeptics say, that's why I don't read the Bible. The sun stands still. We know that that's not how it works. It's the earth is revolving. Okay. It's poetic language. When you wake up on a beautiful summer morning, you walk outside. What do you say? Oh, what a beautiful earth revolving. <laughs> what a beautiful sunrise. You know the sun doesn't rise and set. The earth revolves, but we get that. Poetic. We also read, as we move through the Old Testament, we see the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, how they worked many miracles, even raising the dead. In the New Testament, Jesus worked many miracles, like walking on water, turning water into wine, multiplying small amounts of food to feed thousands of hungry people. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He calmed the storm. In fact, he did so many miracles that John said to end his gospel, he said, Jesus truly did so many miracles in our presence that I couldn't fit them all in my gospel. In fact, so many that if they were listed one by one, I don't think all the books in the world could contain them. That's a paraphrase from John 20, verses 30 and 31, and John 21, verses 24 and 5. Check it out. That's what he's saying, though. We see how God continued to work miracles during the book of Acts, primarily through Peter and Paul, that's true, but also uh, through others like Stephen and Philip. And that brings up an important point that I want to touch on just for a minute. Did miracles cease at the end of the apostolic period, the end of the first century? Many good pastors and the theologians say yes. They're called cessationists. The, the, the gifts, the workings of miracles, they ceased at the end of the first century, which is the end of the apostolic period. Many other good pastors and teachers and theologians do not believe that's true. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been and always will be a miracle-working God. So where are the, all these miracles today, you might be thinking? They're out there. They're out there. Mostly in places where simple people believe in God with simple faith. These are, no doubt, many of these very poor people, desperately dependent on God for everything. They're not self-sufficient and uh, skeptical people like we see in our country today. If you read the reports from missionaries around the world, especially in third world countries, you'll see that God is still working miracles. Reminds me of a story I heard years ago about a, a woman, godly woman, and uh, she was, um, I think, maybe uh, just turned 80. And God laid on her heart to be a missionary in Chile. So she applied to all the missions organizations she could find, and they all wrote her back a very nice letter and said, ma'am, we thank you for your interest, but we cannot invest the kind of money in you that would allow us to train you for the mission field being so old. I mean, just basically, we're not going to get a return on our investment. So they turned her down. All these organizations turned her down. That's okay, because God wanted to do a work. So she sold everything and moved to Chile and started to minister to a tribe down there. And she was telling him how the God of the Bible is a miracle-working God and this and that, and he raised his son from the dead and so on and so forth. Well, one night, she has one of the, uh, the braves, the chief's guys, come to her hut and said to her, uh, the chief wants you to come to his hut. Uh, his little boy has just died, and he wants you to call on your God to raise him from the dead. You've been telling us about this God, right? And she's like, oh, boy, Lord, help me. It's easy to have faith, but when you have to put feet to your faith, that gets a little touchy. And so she went, and she prayed. The boy was laid out on the table, and she prayed. 
And God raised that boy from the dead. And that whole tribe came to Christ. Look, God doesn't need miracles to bring people to Jesus. But he is an omnipotent, powerful God. And he's used miracles many times in the past. Why do we think he's done using them today? When it comes to America, I know a lot of Americans say, well, why isn't God doing more miracles in America? I think because of our unbelief. I think because of our unbelief. Uh, Matthew 13, Jesus wanted to do more miracles in Nazareth, but couldn't because of their unbelief. Guys, not only do I believe that the days of miracles are not over, I believe, because the Bible teaches this, I believe that we are about to enter a period in our planet's history that will be unparalleled in miraculous events, good and bad. What do you mean? Well, the Spirit is going to be moving in the miraculous in the days of the Antichrist, primarily, I think, through the miracle of the new birth. Let's not forget that's the greatest miracle. But the Holy Spirit is going to be working through the believers during the tribulation period. But the Bible says that the Antichrist will be infused with supernatural demonic power and will be able to do true miracles, but they be lying signs and wonders. They will mislead people away from the truth into the devil's lies. Right now, it's important that we draw near to God and allow him to work through us in whatever way he chooses to work to touch this world for Jesus while we're still here. We have to be people of faith, walking by faith and not by sight. We serve a miracle-working God. It's time that we stop making him small in our eyes and start praying BHAG prayer. You ever heard of a BHAG prayer? It stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. Just make sure you're not asking God for great things for yourself, but for his glory. I heard about a young pastor who asked an older Christian who was known for doing great things for God to pray with him. After a little while, the older man told the younger, the young pastor, you pray too small. You pray too small. The reason our prayers are often too small is because our concept of God is too small. It honors the Lord. We pray prayers that are way bigger than our ability so that when he works, he gets the glory. Dawson Trotman, founder of Navigators, said that one day he said, I had to repent, it was noon, and I hadn't yet asked God for anything great. See, men like that, women like that, are used by God because they're willing to step out of the boat. They're willing to step out of their comfort zone. They're willing to say, God, I don't know, you can do anything. I mean, you can do all things, Lord, and I'm reporting for duty. Use me. And God often does. And people around go, what is with this? How is this person doing all these things for God? Because God's using him or her. Look, years ago, 20 years ago, actually, I uh, had just heard a pastor talk. In fact, I'm going to quote the story in a second. I just heard this pastor talk about God doing great things. And so I came home and I prayed, Lord, I want my teaching ministry to reach more people. Will you please raise up a small group, you know, a group of guys that I can teach to expand my ministry? Now, that's where I was coming from, a small group. I wasn't praying big prayers. God, can you give me a small group? Well, God answered that prayer and did give us a small group. It's still around today. But what he did was he answered that prayer in a way I never thought. 
He opened the door for us to go on radio 20 years ago this April. Because God didn't want to just reach a small group of guys. He wanted to reach Chicago in North Indiana and all with the, with the gospel. Not that he was only using me, but he wanted to use me. We limit God because we don't really, why not ask, if it's all by grace, we get what we don't deserve. Why not just ask him for the, for the moon and just whatever he gives then, at least I'm praying big prayers because I believe God's a big God. God said to Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. William Carey, the famous missionary in India, said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Let me close with a story on this subject. I heard this story years ago, never forgotten it. I've shared it at pastor's conferences, Bible college. I was listening to a, uh, a Christian professor at a uh, Christian university, Multnomah, and uh, he was teaching a class on evangelism. And he told the students, look, summer break is about here, but let's not go on summer break. Let's rent a couple of houses on the beach in New Jersey and, uh, and the girls can live in one, the guys can live in the other, and let's go out beach evangelizing this summer and see what God's going to do. Well, he had never actually done that before, so he found a guy that that was his ministry, street evangelism, beach evangelism, and so he invited him into class to teach the kids. And after the guy got done an hour or so later, one of the students raised their hand and said, uh, said Sir, um, what kind of results can we expect that would be a good summer? How many people do you think are going to get saved. And the guy said, well, look, if you, if, if you see 25 people come to Christ, that's a good summer. That's good. If you see 100 people come to Christ, that's a miracle. And they thanked him, and he left. And the, and the professor came around and said to the students, look, let's not limit God, all right? Let's not limit God. Let's go out there and pray big prayers to our big God. Let's consider 100 kids brought to Christ this summer a failure. And so they went out. At the end of that summer, true story, at the end of that summer, they didn't see 25 kids come to Christ or 100 or 200. They saw 1,200 kids come to Christ. And they learned a very important lesson. We serve a big God. Let's not limit him. God is only limited by our lack of faith. Not that he's ever limited ultimately, but he's limited in the work he wants to do in our lives. Let's not limit God. Let's pray big prayers, big, hairy, audacious, cold prayers to our God and say, Lord, I don't know what you want to do. These are desperate days. There's darkness everywhere. And people don't even believe in you anymore. God, use me in a way that goes so far beyond me that when you work, you get all the glory. Let's do that. Let's pray big prayers to our big God. Because that was really what the gospel is all about. We get saved unto good works. And those good works glorify God if we let them by not hindering or limiting him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for saving us. But that wasn't the end. That was the beginning. And now, Lord, we are your people. We are your representatives. We are your prophets in a sense. We speak on your behalf, sharing your word. And Lord, give us grace that we would not limit you in any way, that we would pray big prayers that go so far beyond our ability that when you work, you get all the glory. And Lord, we pray that you take this little church and use it in that way, that Lord, you will do something so mighty in and through this church that none of us, as Paul said, uh, beyond anything we can even hope or imagine, 
that, Lord, you will do a work that will go so far beyond us. Nobody in this church would ever say it was us. We would all give glory to you. To God be the glory, great things he has done. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.